0: If you have your Bibles with you, please open up to Acts chapter 10. We're continuing where Kevin left off last week, starting in the second half of verse 23, going through the end of the chapter. We're engaged in a sermon series going verse by verse through the Bible, through the book of Acts, but we're taking a quick break to look at what Peter has been up to during the 14 years that Paul mentioned back in Galatians. So let us remember that this is the word of God and we should hear it, and we should receive it as such. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day he entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house. At the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And he asked him to remain for some days. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, You are a righteous King and a holy God. There is none like You. You alone are worthy of our worship. You alone judge rightly. Lord, who can give counsel to you? For your judgment is perfect, and you know all things and see all things. There is no hiding from you. Lord, without your grace, that would be terrible news. For what sinner wants justice from a holy God? So, Lord, we ask that you would come and meet with us today. Give us eyes that we would see you, ears that we would hear your voice. That we would be shown how to repent from our pride, our partiality, to judge rightly, to see as you see, not looking at outward things, but at inward things. Lord, only you can do that for us, for by ourselves and left unto ourselves we are hopeless. But Lord, we know that you have come to rescue us, and that is the gospel we proclaim. And that is why we worship you, for you are good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Who are you partial against? Who am I partial against? How am I to repent of my partiality? That's the main question that this text confronts us with today. And if you're not confronted by God's word, then you're probably reading it wrong. Who are you partial against? This is the main question that we must wrestle with. But before we go through the text, I want to talk about a couple things first. Who am I? If you don't know me, my name is Jacob Alexander. My wife is Grace Alexander. She's right there. Emmett, our son, who's almost 11 months old, is in nursery. I've been coming to buy Grace since fall of my freshman year of college. I was at CNU. Patrick Quinn, whom you may know, um, took me here. I wasn't a believer then. I became a believer in January of 2015. That's a story for a different time. Another thing to know about me is that I come from a Jewish background. My father is Jewish. His family is Jewish. I have a very um, stereotypical Jewish grandmother who lives on Long Island. She has a very thick accent. I will perform that for you at some other time. There might be a couple questions that you guys all have on your mind. Where's Kevin? He's right there. But why am I preaching? I'll give you the lawyer's answer, as Kevin often refers to me as his lawyer friend. It depends. It depends what cause we're talking about, right? Are we talking about the primary cause, the instrumental cause, or the formal cause? Well, I'll give you three answers. Kevin can't. He is recovering from some dental work. Uh, The second reason is that Kevin asked me to, and I said yes. And the third is God's sovereignty. I like to think that God is somewhat humorous sometimes. So who better to give a sermon about a Jew with little to no prep time going to preach a sermon to a room full of Gentiles than a Jew with little to no prep time preaching a sermon (laughs) to a room full of Gentiles? Right. So if you weren't with us last week, um, what Kevin covered last week was Cornelius and Peter's vision. Cornelius got a, a vision from a man in bright clothing to call for Peter Peter got a vision from God saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat traditionally unclean animals or animals that Jewish people would think are unclean, animals that aren't included in the kosher diet. This vision happened three times. Peter objects three times. And then God, through the Holy Spirit, says, Don't call unclean what God calls clean. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week in the second half of verse 23. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa coming in him. So we need to be careful with our antecedents here. Who are we talking about when we say he? In other words, we can read the opening of the second half of verse 23. The next day, Pete rose and went away with them. No, I'm not talking about Pete Rose, the greatest hitter of all time. I'm talking about Simon Peter, the apostle. And he went away with them. That would be the Gentiles he invited into his home. Well, not his home, Simon the Tanner's home previously on the previous day, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanying him. So this, this is very smart on Peter's part. If you remember, these messengers came, and they're like, this Roman centurion from an Italian cohort wants you to come to his house. That's really unheard of, and something fishy might be going on. Um, Peter is generally afraid of people with money, influence, and power. So when someone with money, influence, and power says, come over to my house, the first thing that Peter's thinking is not like, oh, God is telling me to go there. I should probably do that. The first thing that he's thinking is, is I'm gonna, am I going to lose my head? Like These two people, Peter, a Jew from Galilee and the Roman centurion from an Italian cohort, are natural enemies in the eyes of the world. These two people don't meet with each other. So he's going to take some Jewish witnesses with him just to make sure that, you know, fishy things aren't going down. There's some safety in numbers for him. And also, if it just so happens that God is right, and he always is, he wants other members of the Jewish community to be witnesses of that. So it's not just Peter's word, it's their word as well. So we're going to go into verse 24. And on the following day, he entered... Caesarea Cornelius was expecting them and he called together his relatives and close friends so Cornelius like gets a little giddy right he's like oh like the celebrity's coming so imagine being in Cornelius's mind because for him he's a God-fearing Gentile he knows who Peter is this is like if Elvis was coming to your house like you would invite all of your close relatives and your best friends too right like you would be like oh Elvis is coming okay well That's maybe for the older people in the room. For the younger people in the room, it's like Taylor Swift is coming to your house, right? Like, oh my gosh, it's Taylor Swift. So Cornelius has a very human and normal reaction here. Verse 25, when Peter entered. Now, this might be very weird um, for you guys to think about, but this is actually the climax of today's text. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I'm going to pick it up later. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. So like the celebrity comes into your house, Taylor Swift, Elvis, John Lennon, Bruno Mars, pick whoever you want. I don't know, Dale Buster Posey coming into your house, right? Like how would you react if Buster Posey walked into your house? Cornelius falls down on his face and starts to worship Peter. Peter responds with a very humble reaction. He says, stand up, I too am a man. So in this moment, there's two main points that I want you to see here. The first is the deity of Christ, and it's by implication. All throughout uh, Jesus' ministry, Peter, or people fall down at his feet all the time. And he doesn't tell them to stand up. He welcomes their worship because he is God. And he is worthy of their worship. Peter, who is only a man, is not worthy of Cornelius's worship. So he has to tell him, stand up. I, I'm a man. I'm not worthy of your worship. You don't do that. This is a violation of the first commandment. But the other thing, too, is Peter knows a situation like this before. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 5, verse 8, it should be coming up on the screen. But when Simon Peter saw it, that would be the fish filling the boats. You guys remember this story from our long journey in Luke. He fell down at Jesus' knees. He couldn't fall down at his feet because there were so many fish. Saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So Peter knows what it's like to be in Cornelius' shoes. And so for the first time ever, a Jew is going to privately identify with a Gentile. You see, in verse 25, Peter doesn't say, I'm only a man, stand up. He says, I too am a man. He says, You and me are the same. I was once at God's feet, worshiping Him, seeing myself to be a sinner. That's how Peter describes himself. I am a sinful man, O oh Lord. So Peter is starting starting to understand the vision that he got from God and the command that he got from God not to call what God calls clean, unclean. Even more radical, Peter's going to touch him and pick him up. He put his hands on him, saying, stand up, I too am a man. So verse 25 and 26 are really the climax of this text. I'm going to revisit it at the end. We have a lot more to cover. And that's where we're going to draw a lot of our application. But for now, we're going to continue. Verse 27, as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. That is, Peter and Cornelius are continuing their conversation. And Peter is going to be surprised. We're having church. Like, all of Cornelius' close relatives and friends are here, just like was described in verse Um, 24. How we know it's church is, Cornelius is going to describe it later in verses 30 through 33. So Peter is very surprised. He had about a day's journey to think about what was going to go on, but I don't think he expected a Gentile to fall down at his feet. I don't think he expected a whole bunch of Gentiles being there wanting to listen to what he had to say. I don't think he expected to step into a Gentile's home, and I don't think he expected to have to preach a sermon. So verse 28 and 29, Peter is going to address the elephant in the room. He's going to say, "You yourselves know how it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or anyone or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I shall not call any person common or unclean." So Peter finally gets it. He's like, oh, I can't judge all of you the way that Jews typically do. God is doing something different. And then, Peter. So when I was sent, I came without objection. I mean, that's like a lawyer's spin on the facts, right? (laughs) I came without objection. Now, Peter, like, you objected to the vision three times. Okay. So I do have to pause here for... Uh, a note about the commentary. Some commentators think that Peter is being very prideful here. He's being very puffed up. He's like, oh, you yourselves know that me, a Jew, I'm not supposed to be here, but I'm here anyway. That's not Peter's heart. I don't think those commentators are really taking into account the radical nature of verses 25 and 26 and the posture of humility that Peter has verse 25 and 26, like for a Jew to step down and pick a Gentile up off the floor, and before that step into his home, Peter had to be trusting God and the vision and the command that he was given. He said, you're God, I'm not, I'm going to trust you and do this. He's not trying to make himself look important, be important. And He's really just trying to figure out if something is fishy going on. That's why he's addressing the elephant in the room, which is why he's here and why they want him to be here. So Peter's not being prideful. He's being humble. and He's just being transparent. Typically, I'm not supposed to be here. You guys called me here. God has shown me that I shall not call any person common or unclean. So I came. Why do you want me to be here? So Cornelius is going to answer him. But the why, again, is ambiguous, right? So Cornelius is going to give two answers. I'm not going to read verse 30 through 33. That's that's a long chunk, and plus I'm going to read more later, but it's coming up on the screen. But two things to note. Cornelius is going to give two answers to the question. Why did Cornelius send for him? Because God said so? That's the first answer. Cornelius fears God, he trusts God, and God told him to call for Simon Peter, so he did. And the second is at the end of verse 33, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Cornelius and everyone gathered wants to hear what the Lord has to say to them. And this is how we know it's church, because it's in the presence of God. This is a church service, a very impromptu church service. Peter is not very prepared. But I love Cornelius in this moment. He gives Peter the most softball invitation to share the gospel. We came to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I wish ministry was this easy. I've I've done part-time ministry with Grace, part-time ministry in college and in law school. I wish people that were curious about Jesus would just come and be like, so what's the gospel? Can you just tell me what what this Jesus guy is all about? Yes. You have five hours? Um, But Peter is a little bit better than five hours. Um, He's going to respond to the softball invitation and he's going to preach a sermon. It's a very good sermon. Um, It's short. And he has six parts. He has his introduction the work of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the coming judgment of Jesus, and an invitation. Before we get to that, Peter is an apostle. We should look at his words, not elevating them above any other scripture, but the way that he teaches the gospel of Jesus is authoritative. He, his words and the way that he thinks about, talks about, preaches the gospel is binding. It should control the way that we think about, talk about, preach about Jesus. So we should take his words with reverence and care. And before he preaches his sermon, Luke records, so Peter opened his mouth and said, as if people speak with any other part besides their mouth, right? Like, I know Peter sometimes talks out of his rear end sometimes, but that's not the point here. The point here is that Luke is highlighting that Peter is going to unequivocally, confidently, and boldly open his mouth and preach the gospel with two feet in the ground. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. He's not being timid. He's not talking with his mouth closed and really shy. This is who Jesus is. And he's not angry, gritting his teeth either. This is who Jesus is. I can't believe I'm here talking to Gentiles. No, he's bold, confident, joyful, humble. So he's going to open his mouth and speak boldly and confidently about who God is with little to no preparation. So Peter opens with his introduction. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is referencing Deuteronomy 10, 16 through 18. should come up on the screen. I think it's important just in terms of where we are in our sermon series in Galatians, talking about adding circumcision to the gospel. Circumcise, therefore, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and to be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is God. God of gods, Lord of lords. Sorry, my glasses don't let me read that far. Let me... Open up to Deuteronomy 10. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Shirley. The mighty and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So what's going through Peter's mind here? Why does he open up with this? It's because he finally understands that he is just like the Gentiles, that being a Jew doesn't make him special. Makes him special in one sense, right? Jesus came first to the Jews and then the Gentiles. The gospel came to them first. But they're not in need of any less saving than the Gentiles. They don't contribute anything to their salvation, just like the Gentiles. Jews have nothing to add. Nothing to add before God. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. This is God speaking. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Peter opens up with the mere fact that God judges rightly, that we don't contribute anything to our salvation, that the gospel is one of grace and that there is really no distinction in terms of saving and what contributes to it. So he's going to continue. The work of Christ, verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Peter's going to address that they already know Some things about Jesus' ministry, verse 37. You know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. But two things about verse 36. Jesus is Lord of all. Peter's parenthetical here is not just that he's Lord over everything, that the whole world belongs to him. It is that. But it's one step further. Right, Because Peter is sort of expositing the vision that he got, that there's not a distinction between Jew and Gentile. At least God shows no partiality between them. He means that the God of the Jews is the God of the Gentiles and speaks again to the deity of Christ. That word Lord there in the Greek is kurios. This is an important note. The way the word kurios was used in the Roman days is you used to have to take an oath of allegiance to Caesar, saying Caesar Curios, meaning that Caesar is God. Why Christians were persecuted, one of the main reasons is they could not take this oath. It violates the first commandment to say anyone other than God is God. So they can't say it. They can't say Caesar Curios because Christus Curios, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God. So he is, again, reaffirming the deity of Christ. Remember that I mentioned that the way Peter talks about the gospel should be binding? Preaching the good news, right? Preaching the gospel. What is it of? What's its nature? Of peace. Peace. The implication here is that you and me, Jews, Gentiles, anyone, we're at war with God. And there's some good news that through Jesus Christ, we can have peace with God. And it's only through him we contribute nothing. So Peter here is hitting on not only our doctrine of total depravity, right, but unconditional election. There's nothing that we can do to stop the warring between us and God. We're the ones that started it. And it's only in Jesus that we find peace with God. So he's going to address the work of Jesus in verses 37 and verses 38. He's going to start here with Jesus' baptism. He's not going to start with the virgin birth. We typically do when we talk about the work of Jesus. But Peter starts with his baptism. I think this is relevant and really highly skilled for Peter because Jesus identifies with our uncleanliness. I don't need to be baptized, Jesus says, but to fulfill all righteousness, to do all that the Lord commands. In other words, he's not asking you to do something that he hasn't already done and he's going to identify with you, taking on the sign of the new covenant, which is one of cleaning, that we have been made clean. So what have we been made clean by? That's verse 40. Or sorry, verse 39. Verse 39. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. So Peter's here is a nodding to Old Testament scriptures that prophesy about the Messiah being hung on a tree, right? Jesus died in accordance with the scriptures. 3 days later he rose in accordance with the scriptures. This is Peter's central point. Sort of if you think about Peter's sermon as a mountain, he's climbing the mountain. At the center of his sermon is the atonement of Jesus, and he's going to come back down. At the top of the mountain, is Christ's death, his atonement. It's his righteous blood, and only through his righteous blood that we are clean. So that's Peter's central point. Then he's going to move on to the resurrection of Christ, Christ's victory over death, the vindication of all of his righteous work, his perfect obedience to the Father. And he's going to clarify, because Peter is a little bit unprepared, so give him a little grace When he says the word appear, that's a little ambiguous, so he has to explain what he means. It's not that he appeared like some ghost or spirit, some ethereal thing. When he says in verse 41, the second half, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, this is a bodily resurrection. Jesus is flesh and bone after he dies. But he's in a righteous, better body than we're in, hasten the day that we can live in bodies like that. Verse 42, Christ's return. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. So this is our hope, that Christ the righteous judge will come, that justice will be meted out, that one day we will live in a world without sin or sorrow or pain or sickness or death. And then Peter has an invitation. It's an indirect invitation. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So it's indirect. He's not saying, Are you going to repent? But he's saying, Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through Jesus. The implication is, Are you going to repent? So one thing to note about Peter's sermon, the same word in the Greek is repeated four times. The word witness is repeated three for all of the Greek scholars out there. Does anyone know where the fourth is? It's the word testify in verse 42. It's the same word. In the Greek, it's the word martyr. It's the word martyr. It's where we get the English word martyr, meaning someone who dies for a particular cause. But back then in the Greek, it only meant someone who testifies. In other words, a witness. And in 42, to testify is just the verb form of that word. So what does this tell us about Peter's sermon? Though he is unprepared, he's not really unprepared. He's just a witness to what Christ has done in the world and in his life. So we should take great encouragement that we can step into people's unclean places and preach who we know Jesus to be and just be a witness of who he is and what he has done. Verse 44 through 48. This is the blessing of God on Peter's ministry. One thing to note about verse 44, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit happens in the middle of his sermon. We don't really exactly know when, while Peter was still saying these things. And this is shocking, not to Peter, right? Luke leaves out Peter from verse 45. Peter's like, oh, this is par for the course, because I got a vision from God. Of course this would happen. But the the Jews who are with Peter we were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. We don't have time to talk about verse 46 today. I'm happy to talk with you after about it. That's like a whole nother sermon. But Peter's question in verse 47 really cuts to the heart of what we're talking about in Galatians. What he's asking to his Jewish witnesses behind him is, you guys saw what I saw, right? They have the Holy Spirit just like we do. Are we going to withhold the sign of them being brought into the church from them? They have no objection. In other words, Peter is saying, do you think they need to be circumcised before becoming a part of the church? And their answer is unequivocally no, because they are left silent. Peter says, speak now or forever hold your peace if you want them to be circumcised. I don't think they should be. They agree. So let's revisit verse 25 and talk about our application. What's, as Kevin would say, the theological witness of this text? Well, it confronts us with who are you partial against? How do we apply this text? How do we repent of our partiality? Commentators suggest that Peter inviting the Gentiles into his home is radical, in the first half of verse 23 in Acts chapter 10. Sorry. But that's not that's not what scripture says. That's not what a Jew in this time reading this passage would see. See, Peter himself knows when he says you yourselves know how it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit to visit. And this is not what Peter catches criticism for in Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 11 verses 2 and 3. The criticism of the circumcision party is that you went. Peter went. So it's not that he invited Gentiles into his home. This had been done before. It's those three words in the start of verse 25, when Peter entered. So imagine Peter. He's got his vision from God. He's got his word from God and his command, go to Cornelius. and He's like, God, they're unclean, but I'm going to trust you. And I know this is unlawful for me, so he's going to take a big, deep breath, and he's going to go, and as soon as he crosses the threshold, this is like the veil being torn a second time, that Jews and Gentiles can be in the same room, because God has made them clean, has made all of us clean. So let me try to illustrate for you with a story about my life, why The commentaries get it wrong a little bit. So I want you to imagine Jacob in high school. I've just played senior night of football. I'm stinky and smelly and my football pads are all sweaty and dirty. Been rolling around in the mud for about an hour and I come home. My mom does not have to hose me off before I go in. Just go into the garage, take the pads and jersey off, put them in the washer, go take a shower. You see, when you invite dirty people into a clean place, you don't relinquish a lot of control. You can say, yeah, we can clean this off because it's already clean. But let's flip the script a little bit. Now imagine after the game, me and all my buddies in the locker room are all partying because we won and we're all sweaty and dirty with those same football uniforms on. Is my mom going to step foot in that locker room? No, it would be really radical if she did. People would be like, what are you doing? It's really dirty. That's, that's why Peter gets flack for visiting them, not, what, not for inviting them inside. So the veil being torn a second time. We can worship in the same place, you and me. That's why I can stand here or sing over there. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. that We can all worship in the same room, in spirit and in truth that we don't have to have separate courts for worship. Because you and me were saved by the same grace. I want you to note something else. Peter has taken radical steps before. This is the man who walked to Jesus on water. So imagine for Peter, he's not just thinking this is the vision that you've shown me, this is the command that you've given me. But he's been called out to a place that men don't typically walk, that Jews don't typically go to, right? That's the parallel. Men don't walk on water. Jews don't go into Gentiles' homes. So when Peter takes a step across the threshold, it's like Peter taking a step off the boat to walk to Jesus. Peter has to be unapologetically trusting of Jesus in this moment. He was stepping out in faith into a place that he thought was unclean. This is his public declaration of identifying with Gentiles, not just private. It's not in some foyer with Cornelius down on the ground, him whispering, stand up, I too am a man, you and I are the same. To every latent observer outside of Cornelius' house that would be Jewish, him stepping into Cornelius' house would be like, what the heck are you doing? He was trusting God. That's what he was doing. And entering into a place of uncleanliness that the gospel of peace, that the name of the one who makes us clean would be proclaimed. This is what Christ does for us. He steps out of his perfect world of worship. He takes on humanity. And he steps into our unclean world Anyone objecting to the fact that our world is unclean? I know we live or are worshiping in a very nice, clean building. I love worshiping here. But if we look out past those double doors into the world, it's a sin-filled, dirty world that is in need of saving and cleaning. So Peter is literally following in Christ's footsteps, which means we should too. So, The word of God has transformed Peter. All of his partiality, his prejudices, his favoritism have melted away. This is why Paul and him are going to have words in Galatians 2. Because Peter knows not to call clean things unclean. So let's talk about partiality. What is it? It's favoritism and prejudice. There are a lot of words to describe it. But why this is so charged and why Paul is going to bring this up in Galatians is because when we are partial against people, we add extra requirements to the gospel. We say, you are beyond saving because or until you do this. For us, you might say in your heart, you are beyond saving unless and until you change your political affiliation. Unless or until you become a Jew. Unless or until you become more American." unless or until you change your denomination, unless or until you know what it's like to work a blue-collar job, unless or until you know what it's like to work a white-collar job. You are saying to people you are partial against, you must perform or contribute to your salvation in a way that you did not have to. It says more about you than it does about the people that we are partial against. It is a badge of pride that you did not earn. It is one that you must repent of. So partiality is really the sin of pride. It's a violation of the first commandment that you would be worshiped for some characteristic that God had graciously provided you with, one that you did not earn, whether that's being Jewish, being a Republican or Democrat, being an American, being a Presbyterian, working a blue-collar job, I'm reminded of this song that's called I'm Rednecker Than You. (laughs) My town's smaller than your town, and my collar is a little more blue. You might be a redneck, but I'm rednecker than you. It's a song filled with pride. It's a man being partial against people that aren't rednecks. So how do we repent? I'm going to share a paraphrasing quote from one of the commentaries. And that's how I'll close. Whenever we see ourselves not as clean but unclean, as one who is saved only by the grace of God in Christ, then you are ready to open your arms. I should say we are ready to open our arms, our home, our hearts, to other people. And It doesn't make a difference who they are. God does not play favorites with his people. If I got into heaven, wretched man that I am, then the gospel must be for everybody. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, what a glorious gospel that that it is. Your gospel, the only gospel, that we don't have to save ourselves, that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Lord, you who knew no sin became sin, that we would become the righteousness of God. Lord, we thank you that you have cleaned our hearts, that the light of Christ shines on them. You have made us clean, that you and your perfect work, your righteous blood and atoning death have accomplished all that is necessary for salvation. So in your resurrection, we cannot wait for the day where we share in new bodies and live in a world without sin, without partiality or prejudice, with sorrow, without sickness, where you will come and make all things new. Thank you that a person like me can worship in the same room in spirit and in truth as people who come from different families, that we could worship you together, that we have peace with each other, that we would be united together in your gospel. Thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen.